All you people up the back that are getting something to drink, I'm going to pray, but, you know, you just keep going up there and get your stuff and then come on back. Does that sound all right? Good stuff. Father, thank you for uh, today, and thank you, Lord, that we can meet tonight uh, to worship you and to hear your word and with your grace and the help of your spirit, Lord, to apply it into our own hearts and into our daily lives. I pray, Father God, that uh, every person here tonight might know the ministry of your grace and spirit and your word. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep going up there. That's okay. You just keep moving along. And um, Okay. Well, tonight, uh, is, as Bennett reminded you, it's the last in the series relight the fire and that song was a great song so thank you guys for for that great great song and uh, tonight the theme um, that was given to me was along the lines of bold and confident and coming out of 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 17 to 39 and I kind of just rephrased it a little bit I want to talk about being bold and confident of course but uh, I want to talk a little bit about the showdown that took place on Mount Carmel. And uh, the passage is long, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pick out uh, bits and pieces out of the passage. It goes from uh, 1 Kings 18, verses 17 to 39. So we'll just read it as we need to look at it and hopefully draw some things out of that greatly encourage us. And this passage really is set in a time when the spiritual tide of uh, that was in Israel was under the rule and reign of Ahab and Jezebel. Um, and under their particular reign, the, the whole of the spiritual environment was on a real slippery slope and the moral life of the people in Israel was Likewise, on this slippery slope as well. And this spiritual fire that was in the hearts of the uh, Israelite people was extinguished. It had gone out. Um, the, the great kings of the past um, and the great warriors and leaders of the past like Joshua and uh, Caleb and the kings like David and Solomon uh, had all died. And now the people of Israel found themselves under the rule and reign of Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel is a Phoenician princess. So she comes with her own God uh, into Israel. And that God is Baal. So um, who was Baal? Well, Baal was the principal deity of the nation called the Canaanites. And he was the sun god, and he was also the storm god. Now, if you know a little bit of the story of Elijah, you'll remember that leading up to what we're going to look at tonight, he's barged in uh, to the pre- into the presence of Jezebel and Ahab, and declared because of their apostasy and because they've drawn the people of Israel 
to worship Baal, that there would be no rain until he said there would be rain. So this is a smack in the face to Baal, this deity who was the storm god. Um, with Baal, he brings his consort, and that's the fertile uh, or fertility, I should say, goddess, uh, which is Ashtoreth. And so the worship of this this god, this this goddess, took the form of um, child sacrifice and sexual immorality. So as I sat with this passage, I thought a little bit about it, and I want to pose a question to you tonight as part of the introduction of this, because I think it's important. Who was Baal? Was he just an idol? Now, at first glance, you'd be, I think you'd be forgiven for thinking that, but I want to suggest to you that any deity that demands the extermination of a generation of children is satanic to its very core. It's not just this idol that people would worship. And that behind the idol of Baal was a powerful demonic principality that was over the Canaanite nation. So now I want you to see now that this whole story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and this contest is not just something that's seen in the natural, but is something that's powerfully spiritual. That powerful demonic spirit seeks to hold power over various geographic areas, nations, is not something new. In Daniel 10, we read the words of Gabriel. Now, Gabriel is an archangel and Gabriel is a messenger. He is not a warrior angel. Okay, he's powerful, he's an archangel, but he is a messenger. So he brings the word of the Lord, just like he did to Mary. Mary, the Lord has said. And in Daniel, we see him coming to Daniel with a message from the Lord. And he says to Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10 and verses 12 to 13, he says to Daniel, who's been praying for God to give to him insight and discernment and wisdom about a situation that is taking place in the nation where he, along with the other Israelites, have been exiled. He's asking God, God, I need your wisdom. I need revelation. I need to know what to do. And so Gabriel comes in answer to the prayer and he says to him, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. Now, I want to say this to you tonight. Never think that your prayers are never heard. 
from the moment, from the very moment you begin to pray, God is hearing you. Okay? So be encouraged. Stand firm in your faith and know that as you pray, God is hearing and listening. And so he goes on to say, I have come in answer to your prayer. Wouldn't you love an archangel to come in answer to your prayer? I want to tell you we have so much more than that to come to the answer to our prayer. We have God himself in the power and the person of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. I have come in answer to your prayer. But now listen to this. This is what he says to him. But for 21 days, the spirit... Prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. He's not talking now about flesh and blood. He's not talking about a prince on a horse with an army in flesh and blood. He's talking about a prince who's a great powerful principality, demonic, that is over the nation of Persia. Starting to get a picture here. Starting to get an understanding that this confrontation on Mount Carmel is just not my God's bigger than your God. This is spiritual warfare, church. Why, gee, it's exciting. You know why it's exciting? Because we're on the winning side. But nevertheless, the battle is still there. Don't be afraid. For 21 days, the prince, uh, sorry, the spirit prince, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, who was Michael? Another archangel, but who is Michael? He's not a messenger, is he? He's the leader of the armies of heaven. So this is a powerful dude. You get him on your side, guess what? Have a look to your right, he's on your side. Michael, this great archangel, came to help me. And I left him there. <laughs> See, Gabe's just a messenger. And he's not just a messenger. But he left this great, powerful archangel, Michael, to deal with this great, demonic, powerful spirit to make a way so that Gabriel could come through. And, uh, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, this short series has been about relighting your spiritual fire for God. Well, let me tell you that you have an enemy who would just love to make sure that that fire stays well and truly quenched, that it doesn't happen, that he would see you and us as a church lukewarm. The devil doesn't mind lukewarm. What he does mind is red-hot Christians. And so he will do everything in his power to extinguish that flame that we've been saying, come on, Holy Spirit, relight it. And if we've been praying and asking God to do that over these past weeks, I want to tell you, the enemy has also been active. 
in trying to snuff out the work of the Holy Spirit in that area. And one of the ways he will do that is to get you sidetracked with the world and to lead you into compromising your devotion and your fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love what Paul said to the Corinthians in the sense that it's a, it's a powerful warning. Second Corinthians 11 and verse 3, he says, But I am afraid, this is Paul speaking, that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from what? From your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What is it that Satan wants to do more than anything else as a Christian? As a Christian, he can't touch you in the sense that other than God says. But I want to tell you something. What he will do is he will try in your mind to get you anxious, concerned, and worried, fearful, whatever it might be, so that you are led away from a pure devotion to Jesus Christ. That's what he will do. And Paul warns us that in uh, Ephesians 6 and verse 12, we are not fighting against flesh and blood. Now, isn't this an amazing uh, illustration with... Elijah and and Ahab and Jezebel and all the prophets of Baal. And we would think it's a contest between flesh and blood. But let's look deeper. Let's look with eyes that really begin to see what's happening in the heavenly realms. And what we see is Paul saying we're not fighting against flesh and blood and uh, enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Well, that could frighten the living daylights out of you, couldn't it? If we didn't have Jesus on our side. All that to say that the battle rages... And the battle is hot. And our enemy is powerful. But John says, Greater is he that is within you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you. Want to tell yourself that right now? Greater is he that is within me. Who is in you? Amen. By the Holy Spirit, Jesus is within you. Got to tell yourself that. Sometimes you've got to slap yourself a bit and tell yourself, greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world. Especially when you're in the throes of spiritual warfare. And finally, in Matthew 12 and verse 27, Jesus called Satan Beelzebub. Remember that? If, if I do what I do, By the finger of God, why do you call me Beelzebub? Linking the devil, here's Jesus linking the devil to Baal-zebub. Okay? And Baal-zebub was a Philistine deity. 
in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 2. So the Baal of the Old Testament was nothing more than a demon masquerading as a god. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 20 that all idolatry is ultimately devil worship. He says this, the sacrifice, sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want to be a participant with demons. So in the light of that, because I want to give you a greater picture here. This is not a Sunday school story. I want to give you a greater picture here. In the light of all of that, I want to suggest that it's not just a showdown here on Mount Carmel between men. But rather, it's a battle in the spiritual and takes place in the heavenlies, just like Paul said. And it's between Jehovah God. Jehovah means the Lord Almighty. Oh, don't you love this? I mean, truly, even if you look at Israel... I could get off on a tangent right now. If you look at Israel today... You think, and I think, that the battle is between the Jews and the Palestinians. It is not. The battle is between God Almighty and Allah, Satan. It's a spiritual battle, but it is worked out in the natural. And that's what happened on Mount Carmel. There's a heavenly battle going on that's worked out in the natural. And it's between Jehovah, God. And that is deliberately his name. The name for God in that place is deliberately put there. He's almighty. He's the Lord, sovereign, almighty. And this powerful demon, Baal. And that God has the victory in the heavenlies is ratified by what happens in the natural. And that's the defeat of Ahab, Jezebel, and all the prophets of Baal. And that's what we want to look at tonight. Are you hanging on to your chair? (laughs) I am. It's against this backdrop that we meet prophet, the prophet Elijah when he comes with a message from the Lord, and it's a clarion call uh, for the people to turn around from the direction that they've been going and to relight the fire of love and loyalty to God. And that's truly been the message over the last six weeks or whatever it is. It's church. This has been this exaltation, this encouragement. Church. Let's relight the fire. Not in our own strength, but through the person of the Holy Spirit who lives within us and is amongst us, that he would relight the fire. Not by human endeavor, but by him. And in tonight's passage, things come to a head. 
In one corner there's Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets and the priests of Baal. And the entire nation of Israel, apart from 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Poor old Elijah didn't even know about those ones, but there were 7,000 still who were loyal to God. Had not bowed their knees uh, to him. And on the other hand, there's Elijah and God. The odds may look stacked, eh? But who of us tonight knows that one with God is a majority? It absolutely is. And as we look at this showdown on Mount Carmel, let's take a time to allow the, the Lord to speak into our own hearts and to reveal things that might not be as they ought to be whether in our personal lives or in us as a church. Okay, let's join Elijah on top of Mount Carmel, which really is a bit of a hill rather than the mount. It's 556 meters high, which is not big. But nevertheless, I'd hate to run up it. Okay. So let's have a look. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How long will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. What a bunch of wusses. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only... Wasn't that in there? Oh, that was my own translation. (laughs) Sorry. I am the only prophet of the Lord who has left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever. One they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar. But without setting fire to it, I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people went, oh, yeah, yeah, that's not bad, eh? yeah. Gee, you know, it's a win-win situation, isn't it? You know, we can't miss this one. I want to look at, firstly, the dilemma of the people, right? First, look at their waywardness. And this verse tells us that on one hand, these people, they really enjoyed being God's people. You know, just it was great. You're you're an Israelite, yeah. You followed Jehovah, over man, you know. And sometimes it's a little bit like us, you know. You're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I guess what we're wanting to find out tonight is, are we truly living a life that in fellowship and devotion to God, or are we living a life of compromise? Are we indeed hobbling between two opinions? In fact, the word there talks about limping along a fence, or like a bird. 
you know, you watch a bird and it jumps from branch to branch to branch. Why doesn't it stay on one branch? For goodness sake. <laughs> from one branch to another branch to another branch. And this is the, this is the picture that, uh, uh, Jeremiah, sorry, that would be Elijah is giving. You're just wavering between two opinions. And you know what wavering is? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, oh, no, no, no. Yes, I agree. Now, yeah, God is, oh, no, no, hang on for a second. Baal is, Baal is God. Oh, no, 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 no. So it's between two opinions. And the time has come. God is really fed up with the apostasy and with the waywardness and of his people not being, uh, not following him and just hedging their bets. That's the way of compromise. And in verse 21, we get this warning. Elijah's rebuke is direct and to the point. He tells them that they have to make a choice. Elijah sees their compromise as an affront to God. And he's telling them that they must choose which side they will be on since they cannot genuinely serve two gods. Can you hear the perhaps the word of Jesus in all of this who said in Matthew 12 and 25, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. You know, 12 disciples empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit turned the world upside down. They were singularly devoted to God. Singularly devoted to Him. They were full-on Christians. <laughs> and so they followed Him without wavering, without... That's after the resurrection, of course... <laughs> Filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we've got to be sure that, now nah, let's do, say that differently, that we would be a church so empowered, so filled with the Holy Spirit, and that we would be following Christ uh, just with pure devotion, solely focused upon Him. Then I want to tell you that Blackheath Baptist Church could turn the world upside down. Now, don't fall asleep on me. At this point, you should be swinging from the chandeliers or doing a little bit of Blues Brothers down the aisles. That's what we should be doing. But if, if we are not all hot for Christ, then it's a little bit like Jesus is saying, if the house is divided, if the house is not all hot, but some hot, some cold, some lukewarm, some around there and there, then it will not stand. Maybe I'm stretching that a little bit, but maybe I can use it as something that would help us to understand of our need to be hot for the Lord Jesus Christ. Over hundreds and thousands of years since Elijah faced Baal's prophets on Mount Carmel, things have changed <laughs> just a bit culture is vastly different. The world itself is nothing 
like it was back then. However, one thing remains the same, church, and that is God is still God. He hasn't changed. In fact, James is not even a shadow, not even a hint. There's not even a of God changing. Not even a hint. What was that? A hint. Not, not a bit of God changing. Sorry, I really like my sermons to be entertaining as well. <laughs> so James leaves us in no doubt that there cannot be any compromise. That there can't be compromise when he wrote this. Oh, and he's speaking to Christians here. So duck right now. He says, you adulterers. What's an adulterer? An adulterer is somebody who says, I love you, but goes over to someone else. So he says, you adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. You know what will snuff out the fire of the Holy Spirit in you and I? Compromise. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. <laughs> it will snuff it out. But if we're singularly devoted to God, and He has our heart, I want to tell you, everything else will follow. He's got our heart, everything else will follow. If we are, then we will be a flame for God. Who wants to be a flame for God tonight? Woohoo! Come on, baby, laugh, laugh, laugh. <laughs> Yeah. Yep, the Holy Spirit, man. All right, I'll just give me another one. <laughs> So that was the dilemma of the people of God, okay? What about the demonstration of the power of God in verses 25? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Thank you. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Oh, yeah, you go first. Oh, gee, this guy's really, you know, he just knows he's got victory. But, oh, no, no, you go first. For there are many of you, you know, choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. You see, Baal was the God of storms. He was the God of lightning. <laughs> so he's the God of lightning. And so Elijah's setting him up badly, really. So don't, don't, don't uh, you know, light the fire. Um, then call on the, called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar, because their feet were really sore by midday. Uh, and they made. About noontime... Elijah began mocking them. Oh, why wouldn't you let me tell you? 
You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed. For surely he is a god, perhaps he's daydreaming or is relieving himself. He's gone to the toot. <laughs> okay. Or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. That doesn't sound like mocking to me. That sounds like serious scoffing to me. So they shouted louder. Mate, they start to get themselves into a frenzy now. They're running out of time and running out of steam. And following their normal custom now, oh, look, it's, this is really serious stuff now. They cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood flowed, gushed out. So they're cutting arteries by the sound of it. It's all gone all over the place. And then they raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still, there was no sound, no reply, no response. So look at the futility of following Baal. All day long, the prophets had prayed and they cried out, yet they hadn't received so much as a small voice. Just, just been nothing. So Elijah just sees the folly of it all, and, and so he, he gets in there, and he's just having a really great time. And why is he having such a great time? You know, why is he so filled with boldness and confidence? Oh, because he knows that God is with him. And by the way, he's already had an experience of God in his life. Huh? After going to Ahab and Jezebel and going, hey, listen, it's not going to rain until I say something. The Lord says, that's serious. You better get out of there because Jezebel's going to cut your throat if she gets you. So he goes to the brook of Cherith. And there God says, I'll feed you with the ravens. So the ravens come and take away, you know, and they bring food. And, and so he eats the food. And so the, the Lord's provided. He's seen the miracle of all of that. And then God says, I want you to go to Zarephath. Now, when he goes to Zarephath, Zarephath is right, <laughs> right in the middle, right in the middle of where Jezebel comes from. In fact, she could have even come from that city. Don't you love the humor of God? It's like God says, well, I'll show you. I'm going to send my prophet right into the midst of the danger and, the, uh, and where, where uh, Jezebel even comes from. And so he, remember, he goes there and he, uh, there's a lady, a widow. She's got a little bit of flour and a jug of oil or a little bit of oil. And so he says, oh, look, you know, can you make me a cake and, you know, and things. She says, oh, no, no, I can't do that because this is all I've got and, and I'm going to prepare my last meal for my son and I to eat and then after that we're dead. We're going to die. And he says, don't be afraid, but just do as I've asked and you will never run out of flour and you'll never run out of oil. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. So Elijah's full of confidence. He's full of boldness because he knows that God is on his side. <laughs> so I'm saying to us that tonight, why wouldn't our hearts be aflame for Jesus when we've got such a great God that we can place our confidence and our, and our trust and our faith in. And all the church, 
Amen. Absolutely. And so, uh, Elijah is just so confident and so bold in the whole thing. And so, he's mocking them. And he, and, and guess what? Baal is powerless. Powerless to do anything. Oh, now, cool. Come on. Take your eyes off what is happening in the natural and throw them into the heavenlies. <laughs> Why is Baal powerless to do anything? Of course, God has just wiped the floor with him. Hello. God has just had an amazing victory. And as if God wouldn't have the amazing victory over this great powerful demon. So, let's... Let's... No, we'll keep it there. Uh, Then Elijah called to the people. Ah, there you go. Come on over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one of represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the large uh, the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, laid the pieces on the wood, and then he said, fill four large jars with water and if you look at the translation of all of that we're talking gallons and gallons and gallons of water and pour the water over the offering of the wood okay after they had done this he said do the same thing again and when they were finished he said now do it a third time so we've got one soaked up bull in, in, in pieces and we got water everywhere and the water ran round the altar and even filled the trench and uh, you know, hello, they're in the middle of a drought right now. So at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar. Now keep in mind that the prophets of Baal have been doing the jig and cutting and slicing themselves all day, crying out all day. And now Elijah comes with 60, probably 63 uh, words here. And he just says this, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, the God of the, of the living as well. Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. Oh, Lord, answer me, answer me, so these people will know that you, oh, Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. And, of course, what happened? You know, the fire falls from heaven. Fire falls from heaven. And it not only just takes up every... I mean, it takes up the sacrifice, it takes up the water and even the dust, even the dust that was there, it's all gone. This is a nuclear site. <laughs> it's absolutely raised. There's not a thing, not even a cockroach, which I believe can live through a nuclear war. 
There's, not, there's nothing left. God has showed his power. And in showing the people his power, he brings them back to himself. I want you to know this evening that when you as an individual or we as a church body reach the place where we're willing to stand for God and maybe we stand alone for him and we're willing to put our faith in God into action then and we stand for him, he will take his stand with us and his presence will be with you and us as a church. But we need to make a chance, uh, uh, sorry, a stand. Church, we cannot compromise. We cannot compromise the word of God. We cannot compromise who we are in Christ. We must stand firm and true to our calling and to the work of the Holy Spirit in transforming us into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to stand firm. We need to stand firm in the word of God. We do not water down the word of God so that it fits into our life. We fit into what the word of God says. And so it is that there was a tremendous victory that day. And just as I conclude now, but there was a decision to be made, wasn't there? By the people. You might say it's a no-brainer. But I remember Jesus saying once in answer to... Um, uh, as Sorry, not in answer, but in giving a story about Lazarus and the rich man. And the, the rich man who, who is in hell says to Abraham... Look, if you just let me go back to my relatives and say, Hey, here I am, and you better turn from your evil ways and follow the Lord, then they'll do that. And, of course, um, Abraham, in this story, says to him, You know, well, no, Jesus says, if, if, if they would not take notice of him there and then, even if somebody was to come back from the dead, they wouldn't believe it. And so it's not a no-brainer. A decision still had to be made. And the people made a decision that day on Mount Carmel, and they experienced God in power, and he answered the prophet by fire, and there was no denying the reality of what they had seen. And there's no other way to know God than to experience him in a personal way. And you cannot experience God from a distance. It's like discipleship. You, you, you can't follow Christ at a distance. You need to follow him closely and by his side. And so it is that we there's no other way to know God than to experience him personally. And I'm convinced that people fall away from following God simply because they never knew him in the first place. Because if I go to McDonald's, that doesn't make me a hamburger. And just because I go to church doesn't make me a Christian. Okay? Just because I go to church doesn't make me a Christian. So I'm here to, tonight saying, so where do you fit in all of that? Are you sure in your own heart, have you actually made 
a decision for Christ in your own heart and life to follow him. There's no other way to know God than to experience him as we open our lives to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And when people meet him, we're changed. When people are just doing the religious thing, they're miserable. And I want to say this to you as well, that the most miserable of all Christians, the most miserable of all Christians are those who are on the fence. If you really want your fire relit, then you've got to get on the Jesus side of the fence. No more on the fence. We can pray, we can sing, and we can even write songs about relighting the fire. But unless we get off the fence, unless we stop wavering between, well, you know, I want to do my own thing. No, Lord, I'll follow you wholeheartedly. No, 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 I really want to do my own thing. And it's like God saying, oh, for Pete's sake, will you make your mind up? And that's what he's saying here. Why are you wavering between two opinions? If I am your Lord, follow me. Give your life wholly to me. And I will put such a fire in your stomach, such a passion for me in your life, Such an abundance of life. After all, that's what Jesus came to give us, did he not? Abundant, I have come to give you life in all of its fullness. But it's only found in our first, first, in our commitment to Jesus and then in our wholehearted fellowship of him. When we come to the place where we're willing to separate ourselves from all other gods that compete for our attention and yield to God, then we will find ourselves drawn to Him. True in heart and true in worship. Nothing in the world is more captivating and appealing than a heart that is aflame with love for the Lord Jesus Christ and a heart that burns with a desire to see God glorified whatever the cost. John Wesley was once asked the secret about his life and his ministry. And this is what he said. I ask God to set me on fire and let people watch me burn. I wonder if that could be your prayer tonight. I wonder if that could be your prayer tonight. I'm going to do something that I didn't even think I'd do right now. If that's your prayer tonight, and as we've been journeying through these last several weeks of relight your fire, and the band can come back now, I'm not sure what the next last song is. It doesn't matter. But if that's your prayer, Lord, I want you to set me on fire so that people can see me burn. 
then I want to invite you to come forward and stand out the front tonight. If you want to say to, you, uh, to the Lord tonight, Lord, I'm, I'm sick and tired of wavering between two opinions. Tonight, I want to say, I'm all yours. And I'm not going to waver anymore. You have my devotion, my life, and with your grace and help, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to follow you. If, if you want to say that and pray that tonight, and you're really serious about that, I want to invite you to come and stand out the front. And we're not going to pray with you. 